I want you to imagine that uh, I've pitched up this morning uh, with my trusty time machine. Okay, so you imagine that. Uh, I want you to imagine that uh, as a, a, an act of faith, you step inside the time machine and I transport you forward in time to the heady heights of 11 o'clock tomorrow morning. Uh, some of you, uh, sorry about this, but you're going to be at school. Uh, some of you, I guess, may well be in a lecture. Uh, some of you, the majority of you, are going to be at work. Uh, perhaps you'll be uh, hanging out with friends at a coffee shop or whatever. Wherever you are, imagine that someone asks you how you spent your Sunday. Now, how many of you, maybe this is just me, I don't know, but how many of you immediately feel this tension in the back of your head, because if you say, well, I went into town, or I went shopping, or I went for a jog, or I spent the day with my family, or I watched a bit of the football, or pretty much anything, great. But if you happen to say, well, I did what I do every Sunday, I met up with a whole bunch of followers of Jesus, uh, and we sang a load of songs declaring that Jesus is mighty and he's Lord, not only over our city, but over the whole world. Uh, And then we listened to this guy talking about the Bible for the best part of 40 minutes. I mean, it was brilliant. You, You should try, you should come with me sometime. If you say that, what happens? Well, Nine times out of ten, if your experience is anything like mine, nine times out of ten, there's this instantaneous tension in the air, and it is thick. I mean, cut it with a knife, palpable. It can just be incredibly awkward, can't it? Uh, And if you're anything like me, you're kind of trying to imagine what they are thinking in that moment. Like, you're one of those people? I mean, you must be crazy. You must be weird. I mean, I never put you down as this kind of uneducated bigot before. It's like talking about being a Christian can be an immediate conversation killer. Now, actually, uh, this is a pretty recent development, at least here in the UK. I mean, uh, over the last two or three decades, it's like there's been this seismic shift in our culture. We've evolved from what some people call a Christian culture into a post-Christian culture. Now, to clarify, when I say Christian, uh, I don't mean that we were a Christian nation, not least because people are Christians, not nations. But what I mean by that is there was this time not too long ago when we as a country were Christianized, when our culture, at least for a very long time, was this mixture of a lot of Christian ideas, uh, of course mixed with a bunch of pagan ideas, and then after that, secular ideas. But most people on the street at least believed in God, or uh, a little bit of belief in Him, and uh, at least little bits and pieces of the Bible, kind of the basic morality and ethics laid out in the Scriptures. But not anymore. Well, well, there's absolutely no doubt that Christianity is still on the increase. It's still growing. It's still expanding rapidly all around the world, in particular in the global south right now. Here in the West, and in particular here in the UK, I think it's fair to say, is in decline. And the biblical terminology, the 
biblical word or the biblical metaphor that perhaps best captures all of this is the metaphor of exile. Uh, It's this metaphor, it's this terminology, it's this theme that's used all through the Bible for whenever God's people find themselves as a minority in a culture where the dominant values are alien or even hostile to the ways of God. And, as I'm sure probably all of you would have to agree, that is very much the situation facing us right now. We've moved past the point where what Christians believe is mocked or even thought of as, well, that's just irrelevant. I think what we're now facing is this pretty aggressive agenda to change our beliefs to fit in with what is acceptable to our society or else risk losing our business or our job or maybe our freedom to meet in spaces like this, uh, even potentially our families. And so the challenge I think we're all facing to some degree is how to respond to this situation. How do we live as exiles in a culture that is increasingly hostile to what we believe? And I honestly think there is actually no better book, for sure in all of the Old Testament, and arguably the whole of the Bible, there is no better book for how to live in exile than the book of Daniel. And so what we're going to be doing over the next eight or nine weeks or so is looking at the book of Daniel and allowing Daniel to be our guide to kind of help navigate the strange new alien terrain of the exile. What I want to do today is simply walk through with you the opening of the story that's found in Daniel chapter 1. And then uh, I want to step back and show you just four of the strategies that are used by the culture of Daniel's day to try and influence him and how he overcame those strategies. That sound good to you? Up for that? Let's do it then. Let's pick up the story. Daniel 1 verse 1. This is how it starts. During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Verse 2. What are the first two words we find there? The Lord. The Lord gave Nebuchadnezzar victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah. And what's the word? permitted him. It arises this was an incredibly dark period in the history of God's people. It, it looked like God was nowhere to be seen. What we see here is that all the time God was still in control. God remained mighty. He was still sovereign. He was still pulling the strings. The Lord gave this pagan king victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. Now, just to explain that removal of sacred objects and putting them in the temple of your own God, that was what sounds pretty odd to us, but actually common practice in the ancient 
Near East. If you defeated a nation, it was thought that you defeated that nation's god or gods. And so carrying off their sacred objects like this, it was a way of saying, look, my god beat up your god. And so the whole idea here isn't just that Israel was defeated by Babylon, but that Israel's god was defeated by Babylon. That's how things appeared. But as we've just seen, beneath the surface, it only ever happened because the Lord permitted it. Verse 3, then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said. Make sure they're well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. And so these are essentially smart, well-educated young men from the nobility with model-esque good looks. In other words, way back then, it wasn't good enough simply to be good, you also had to look good. Back then, image was everything. So nothing's changed there then. And these men are put into a three-year cultural immersion program. Verse 5, the king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar, Hananiah was called Shadrach, Mishael was called Meshach, Azariah was called Abednego. And then, look at this key line in the story, verse 8. But Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. Now again, just to explain, in the ancient Near East, in particular in Jewish culture, the food you would or wouldn't eat It was kind of this sign of your spirituality or the God that you worshipped. And so although Daniel appears willing to have his name changed, which was a pretty big deal, he refused to compromise on his allegiance to God. And so we see him asking for permission not to eat the king's food. Verse 9, now God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. So, who was it who caused him to respect Daniel? God. Again, we see God working behind the scenes, not just in Israel, but here in the heart of Babylon. He's still very much at work. Verse 10, but the chief of staff responded, actually, I'm afraid of my lord the king, who has ordered that you eat this food and wine. If you become pale and thin compared to the other youths your age, I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded. 
Daniel spoke with the attendant who had been appointed by the chief of staff to look after Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Please, just test us for 10 days on this diet of vegetables and water, Daniel said. At the end of the 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food. Then make your decision in light of what you see. The attendant agreed to Daniel's suggestion and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better nourished than the young men who had been eating the food assigned by the king. So after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of the food and wine provided for the others. At which point, all the vegetarians and the vegans in the room are kind of cheering, we told you so, we told you so. Now, there's a whole lot of debate and controversy around what exactly is going on here. Some people suggest that that the food might have been used for idol sacrifice or sorts of other stuff. But the most likely theory is that the meat from the king's table wasn't kosher. And so to eat it was to break the food laws from the Torah. And Daniel draws a line in the sand at this point. He says, look, I'm sorry, but no. I worship the one true God, and this goes against what my God teaches. And look how God honors Daniel's commitment. Verse 17, God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meanings of visions and dreams. And so, it's not just that Daniel was particularly smart, and hardworking, although he was both of those things, the Holy Spirit, we see, gave him extra understanding in his education. Into what? What does it say? Understanding into every aspect of the wisdom and literature of who? The, the Babylonians. Get that? God gave knowledge and understanding into this deeply pagan culture. Verse 18, when the training period ordered by the king was completed, the chief of staff brought all the young men to King Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and no one impressed him as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And so they entered the royal service. Whenever the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them ten times more capable than any of the magicians and enchanters in his entire kingdom. And so they essentially graduate with a PhD in Babylonian, uh, and I think it's fair to say they do really, really, really well. And then you get this closing line, verse 21, Daniel remained in the royal service until the first year of the reign of King Cyrus. And so just to clarify, from Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, which I'm sure you remember, that was the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, remember that? So that last line, the first year of King Cyrus, that wasn't like kind of overnight. That spans well over six decades. 
It's like the writer's way of saying that from literally the very first day of the exile, right the way through to the very last day of the exile, through it all, Daniel models how to not only survive, but to thrive in exile. Now, let's take a step back and start to look at what all of this means, because I'm a fascinating story, lots of interesting little details in there, but what does this mean for you and me? Because straight out of the gate, we're being shown that there are two sides to thriving in exile. On the negative side, we've got to figure out how to avoid syncretism. Anyone tell me what syncretism is? Well, let me explain then. I mean, some of you have got my notes in front of you, so you should be able to kind of shout it out. But syncretism is basically kind of fitting in. We've got to avoid, as Christians, just becoming like our culture. That's the negative side. On the positive side, we have to figure out how to fight off separatism because it is not enough for us as followers of Jesus just to kind of shut ourselves away, segregate ourselves away in our hidden Christian ghetto. We've got to figure out how to actually influence the culture around us. So it's not just a passive thing, there's an active element to this as well. So here's the plan. Next week, Johnny's going to be here, and he's going to talk a little more about Daniel's strategy to influence Babylon. So that's next time. But for the rest of our time today, I just want you to see Babylon's strategy to influence Daniel and his friends, because as I think we're going to find, it's the exact same strategy used by our culture to influence you and me today. So what do we learn from the story in terms of the culture's strategy to influence us? Well, four things. First off is isolation. Isolation. As a youth, as a young person, we see in the story, Daniel is separated from his parents, from his family, from his home, from the ancient equivalent of church, that the temple in Jerusalem. And that leaves him incredibly vulnerable. You see, there's this social glue that a lot of people really underestimate. It's why so many 18-year-olds go off to university and just do stupid stuff. So it doesn't apply to anyone in this room, but you've probably seen it happen in others. It's why so many people get into trouble on a business trip. There's that kind of loss of inhibition when you are unglued from your community. And so the first step to influence Daniel is to get him away from his community of faith. But it was a failure because Daniel forged this little community of faith even in exile. He was right there all the time, shoulder to shoulder with these guys, Azariah, Hananiah, and Mishael. And like Daniel, I think we've got to stick together too. Just by way of an aside, that's one of the reasons why we keep banging on about the importance of life groups. It's not like an option over there on the side if you're in the mood or have got the time for it or are really committed. No, it's the spine. 
It's the backbone of what our church is all about. Because if we're going to make it in a city like Birmingham, we've got to do life together. Now, the reality is, culturally, we need a bit of help with this. If we were just naturally in and out of one another's homes and all the time kind of connecting with one another and in community together, we wouldn't need life groups. I mean, it would just happen naturally. But I think most of us need a bit of a push. Most of us need a bit of structure to help us with this, which is why we run life groups. If we're going to make it in a city like this, we've got to do life together, not as an event for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning, but as a community together. So the first strategy to influence Daniel is isolation, but he overcame it, at least in part, by still finding a community of faith in exile. Second strategy is what I'm calling enculturation, largely because it begins with an I, and for reasons that become increasingly apparent, that was, uh, in a geeky way, quite important to me. So, second is enculturation. Now, what does that mean? Well, as we've seen, first, Daniel is educated in the wisdom and literature of the Babylonians. This was a kind of social engineering. It's designed not just to educate Daniel on Babylon, but to actually make Daniel Babylonian. That's not even the worst part. The the best of Babylonian culture, food and wine from the king's table, more than likely with female companionship, as was the custom in the ancient world, it was all spread out in front of him. Like, hey, here you go. Take your fill. Help yourself. And you've got to remember, Daniel is a refugee The odds are he hasn't had a decent meal in who knows how long. It's like they appeal to his appetites and desires and hungers. Here, just give in to your cravings. Just be true to yourself. It's okay. You deserve it. And anyway, it's how things are done around here. You're not back home anymore. They hold out this vision of the good life that must have been incredibly appealing to him. But in the face of enculturation, Daniel lived out of an alternative story, what we call the Bible, what he would have called the Torah or the law and the prophets. And as we're going to see as we work our way through the book of Daniel, we find Daniel regularly reading the Bible, reading the scriptures of his day. Incidentally, That is one of the many reasons why regularly we encourage you to read the Bible for yourself. It's because we are living out of an alternative story. Uh, Reading the Scriptures is a way to saturate our mind and our imagination, not in the narrative of the secular Western world or whatever, but in the narrative, in the storyline of Jesus and the writers of the Bible. And again, I think it's probably fair to say we need a bit of help with this. Now, if you're already kind of reading the Bible regularly and just doing it, you don't need any help, just keep doing it. But I guess a bunch of us, if we're honest, we need a bit of structure, we need a bit of a provocation, we need a bit of help to understand what it's all about. And I just want to flag up, it's a bit late because we're kind of halfway through January now, but I just want to flag up the Bible in One Year app 
uh, that Nicky Gumble from HDB Church down in London, uh, he kind of puts out. Uh, I've been doing it for, oh, this is my second year now. I don't do it every day. I, I miss the occasional one. I don't beat myself up over that. Uh, but it's just a really helpful way to bring a bit of structure to my Bible reading. And some of you are thinking, well, I just find it really hard to read. Well, there's a great kind of feature on it where you can press a button and listen instead of read. Uh, you get to listen to Nicky Gumball himself uh, and his wife, Pippa, who adds this really kind of weird bit right at the end, but we won't go there. Uh, this has been recorded, so I won't say anything more. But you get to listen to Nicky Gumbel himself. Uh, it's really soothing, and it's, he's wise, and, and got loads to say. You can listen to him. And then the, the best bit of all, you get to listen to David Suchet, who is Poirot, reading the scriptures. And I'll tell you, he's a great reader. It brings it to life, and uh, he really gives his all to it. So even for that, it's worth doing. So uh, absolutely free in your app store, Bible in One Year. Uh, ha- have a go with that. Uh, see how you get on. So strategies to influence in exile. First of all, isolation. Uh, and the way through that is to find a community of faith. Second, enculturation. The way to deal with that is to see your place, find your place in an alternative story, and that comes by immersing yourself in the Scriptures. Third strategy is this, integration. Integration. Don't you, his friends, are integrated into Babylonian society. So they don't get the luxury of hiding away in a monastery or a Christian community, or even in the privacy of suburbia, they are right slap bang in the midst, in the thick of Babylon, under the king's roof, in the king's university. But in the face of integration, they insist on living out an alternative way of life. Daniel built his entire life around these alternative practices, things like fixed our prayer. Uh, We'll we'll come on to this in chapter 6. Daniel would pray three times a day, morning, noon, and night. Fasting was also a regular part of his life. All sorts of things, all sorts of habits and disciplines. Now, I'd argue one of the most important things for us to do in exile is to lean incredibly hard into the spiritual disciplines. Things like Bible reading, prayer, fasting, a weekly meal with your Christian community. How do I do that, I hear you ask? Well, life groups, funny enough, uh, gather around a meal. Most of them do. Why don't you sign up for a life group? You're missing out if you don't. So, uh, gathering for a meal with your Christian community, breaking bread together around the table, uh, church here on a Sunday. All of this, every single discipline, every single practice, every single habit is like this act of rebellion against the empire. It is counterformation against the formation machine of Babylon, or in our case, the secular Western world. So isolation, how do we deal with isolation? Community, uh, enculturation, how do we deal with that? Uh, Nicky Gumbel, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there are other reputable Christian leaders you can go to as well. Uh, But immersing yourself in the story of the Bible, integration, deal with that by leaning hard into the spiritual disciplines. Live out of an alternative story. And then finally, fourthly, identification. 
identification. If you remember, Daniel and his friends uh, in the story, they get renamed. I think it's a, a little bit tricky for us to wrap our head around all of this, but in the ancient world, your name was way more than a label to pick up your drink at the end of the counter. Your name was your identity. In fact, it was even more than that. It was prophetic. It spoke in some way about your destiny. Uh, As one Old Testament writer puts it, in the world of the Hebrew Scriptures, a personal name was often thought to indicate something essential about the bearer's identity, origin, birth circumstances, or the divine purpose that the bearer was intended to fulfill. So names were a big deal. I get this. Daniel and his friends end up getting renamed after the Babylonian gods. And so Daniel, in Hebrew, means Yahweh is my judge. It's a great name. He's renamed Belteshazzar, which means treasurer of Bel. That's another name for Marduk, the king of the Babylonian pantheon. Not such a good name. Hananiah means Yahweh shows grace. He's renamed Shadrach, under the command of Aku, the moon god. Again, not quite so good. Mishael in Hebrew means, who is like Yahweh? It is changed to Meshach, which means, who is like Aku, the moon god? I mean, who cares? Uh, Azariah means, Yahweh is my helper. He's renamed Abednego, servant of Anu, yet another one of the gods. You see what's going on here? This isn't like, hey, your name is really hard to pronounce, and so we're going to change it to something culturally more easy for us to say. No, this is a deeply repressive move to replace their God-given Hebrew identity with a pagan Babylonian identity. But thankfully, it was an abject failure Because once again, what we're going to see as we go through this story, Daniel's whole identity was firmly rooted in God. And so, yes, he was renamed, but Daniel never once seems to call himself by his Babylonian name. He says, you can call me whatever you like, but uh, I'm going to keep calling myself Daniel. Not only that, but the writer of the book of Daniel, uh, we don't know precisely who it is, A lot of people assume it was Daniel himself. Probably it wasn't Daniel. But whoever it is, the writer constantly misspells all the Babylonian names. So at first, uh, scholars thought it was like kind of some scribe way back when, kind of messed up a bit and have been living with the consequences ever since. But now, I mean, uh, Ed, I'm sure he can kind of look into this and verify next time around. But uh, my reading would suggest that we've got all of these manuscripts now and it's like, No, no, no. This looks like it was done on purpose. It looks like the scribes intended to get it wrong. It's like the writer, Daniel, or whoever it was, is saying, yeah, I don't even know how to spell those names, but who cares? Those aren't the true identities. So isolation, enculturation, integration, and identification. That is what Babylon does. And that's what Birmingham does too. And if I'm reading this story for the first time, I'm kind of thinking, what earthly hope have these guys got? I mean, they do not stand a chance. And as I then reflect on 
our situation today, I could be tempted to think the same thing. But somehow, Daniel, who was in the story, he was a youth, he was still a teenage boy at this stage, Daniel somehow managed to find the courage to stare down Babylon eye to eye, absolutely no compromise at all. Which, by the way, is what I kind of think this whole story is really all about, the temptation to compromise. You know, there are all sorts of dangers in exile. I want to argue today that this is right at the top of the list of the dangers that we face in 2019 in a city like ours. Like Daniel, we live in a city where, let's be honest, we stick out a bit, don't we? Where we are different from the people around us. If we're following Jesus, we're not like everybody else. We, we live under this overwhelming pressure to conform to the majority opinion, to just compromise, to just give in, to just let it slide and fit in. As a follower of Jesus, in a city like ours, this is absolutely the problem that you and I are wrestling with. You know, sociologists, without wishing to go too highbrow on you, but sociologists, they talk about the difference between hard power and soft power. Heard those terms before? Hard power, soft power. Hard power is like ISIS, like convert to Islam or I will behead you. Now, I've got to say, not all hard power is bad. Uh, the police, for example, they're an example of hard power, like obey the law or go to prison, which is probably fair enough. But either way, it's much easier to be alert to this kind of power. It's pretty easy to spot and therefore do something about it. However, soft power is way more subtle. It's like, hey, you had a drink? That's great. Have another one. You had two? No problem. It's Friday night. Come on, just let your head and have a third one. No big deal. You're out with your friends. Have some fun. Have a good time. You're alone with your girlfriend at her place at night on the sofa. Yeah, that's totally fine. I mean, don't worry about it. You love her. She loves you. That's all that matters. And it feels so good, doesn't it? I mean, if it makes you happy, where could the harm be in all of that? Got some extra money? You don't need to give that away. And you worked hard for that. You deserve it. Treat yourself. Racism? You don't need to worry about that. I mean, you're not that racist. That's not your problem. You don't need to do anything about that. Don't worry. And you show on Netflix. It's supposed to be the best thing ever. And I tell you, the cinematography is awesome. Yeah, it's not porn. I mean, everyone's watching it, so what could be the harm in that? It's got to be okay. I tell you, soft power is absolutely lethal because it is so incredibly unassuming. It's just one seemingly little compromise at a time. And 
over time, people start to grow numb and then apathetic and then eventually just stop following Jesus altogether. I've seen it happen so many times. People just start drifting from the church, like you're there every week and it's like three out of four and then it's every other and then it's once a month and then people just fall away. It's tragic. And I've seen it happen so many times. How? One, little compromise at a time. Seemingly small, incremental decisions that end up having a massive effect on our long-term life. You see, the thing is, sin numbs us. It's like this weird antiseptic to the soul and little sins are often the very worst ones because we don't realize the cumulative effect that they have on us over time. And so here's what I want to ask you to do. Over the next week, sometime in the next seven days, would you simply create a little bit of space by yourself to listen to the Holy Spirit? Would you simply say to God, God, would you please show me some of the areas of compromise in my life? Would you do that? And the odds are, even now as I'm speaking already, maybe a few things are coming to mind. Why don't you write them down? One, two, Maybe three things, no more than that for now. I don't want it to be an absolute shame fest. Don't you kind of overwhelmed with condemnation. Just one, two, three things to start off with. Pray through the list. And then when you're ready, maybe just write down some new habits to cultivate things you think you need to change. I don't know what it is for you. For Daniel, it was meat and wine from the king's table. I'm guessing probably that's not a problem for you. Maybe it is. You're like, the king's wine. I just have to resist. Maybe it's the king's meat. The king's meat is such a temptation to me. I don't know how to overcome that one. I'm guessing probably that's not the thing for you. I just want you to notice this in closing. Notice that Daniel went above and beyond in his pursuit of holiness. So all the Torah said was, no unkosher meat. Daniel says, no food at all from the king's table. And on top of that, no wine. Now, wine's not a bad thing. It is linked with celebration all through the Bible, the new heaven, the new earth, overflowing with wine. So it's not a bad thing. But you can say whatever you want about Daniel. You can call him a legalist. You can call him a fundamentalist. You can say whatever. But Daniel, over six decades, made it through the exile. And in doing so, he substantially changed the world. You know, often in exile, we make the tragic, tragic, tragic mistake of erring on the side of freedom rather than on the side of holiness. And I've got to tell you, exile is really not the place to do that. If there's, 
this kind of in-between area or a gray area maybe. Something in your life that even right now you're thinking about and you're like, oh, I just don't know. Is this conviction from the Holy Spirit or is it just like my kind of religious upbringing or kind of guilt or whatever? If you're really not sure, first just ask the question, is this something that Jesus would do if he were me? And if the answer is categorically no, well, there you have it. Job done. But if the answer is, well, I just don't know. I mean, Jesus didn't have Netflix, so how can I say? Or Jesus never had a girlfriend, so I don't know. Well, my encouragement to you, based on the example of Daniel, is always and everywhere err on the side of holiness, err on the side of purity. Now, you may beg to differ, but I genuinely do not think that we'll get to the new heaven and the new earth and just be like, man, I wish I watched a few more box sets. Oh, gutted. I wish I played a bit more FIFA. I wish I had that extra drink on that Friday night. You are in the presence of God and it is uncut, unedited joy in your entire being for all eternity. My guess is we'll be like, what was I thinking? Why did I trade the presence of God for 50 years, 60 years, 70 years for that thing? All that relationship, all that show, or that habit, or that extra line item in my budget. Like, really? For that? I tell you, it's so not worth it. Because nothing, absolutely nothing, is worth the cost of the presence of God. Remember how Jesus, over and over, would refer back to that iconic line in the Old Testament, be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy. And Jesus would say things like, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will, what? See God. Do you want to see God? Interested? Nothing better to do. Listen, if you would like to see God, if you really would, if you would like to wake up in the morning and have God not be this abstract idea or this feeling that you get in church every once in a while, but a relationship that you're in, a powerful personal presence that you enjoy through every minute of the day. If you want some of that, then Jesus would say, be holy. Not to earn God's favor. If anything, it is more for you than for God. Because at the end of the day, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And never forget, reading Keith Green's biography as a teenager. Anyone know Keith Green? 
I thought it'd be you guys who put your hands up. A few younger ones, which is heartening to me. Uh, he was this, as you can probably see from the screen, this kind of hippie-ish, countercultural prophet, singer-songwriter from the Jesus movement in the 60s and 70s, uh, died young in a plane crash. And his wife wrote this biography of his life called No Compromise. And as I read that book all those many years ago, I resolved, tell you what, I want to live that way. I want to live with no compromise. Reality is, the people that we tend to remember, the people we tend to read about, the people we tend to follow the example of, they don't tend to be the people who go with the flow and blend in and are like everyone else. No, it tends to be the people who say no to compromise. And I don't mean that in all of this, our desire around here is to be famous or well-known or have books written about us. I just mean our desire is surely to follow in the example of men like Daniel to in our day, in our age, in our culture, in our exile, to live lives of no compromise. Not only to make it through exile, but in the midst of it to see God. To know the joy of his presence with us. And just maybe to change the world in the meantime.